This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hello there and welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. It is a Thursday, 8th of February. Here's what we've got for you today. Going to jump straight into earnings season. We've got Adnock Distribution, the petrol station people. Brandy's been speaking to the chief executive. Others as well breaking over the past 24 hours. Details on that and reaction to earnings in the United States. We've had Disney overnight. We had Uber before that. And we're looking at Eli Lilly. Now, that is the drug company that makes one of those blockbuster weight loss drugs. Josh Gilbert, market analyst at eToro, has been sharing his thoughts on them. What else can I tell you? Tourism booming in Dubai. We are now above pre-pandemic levels. Record year. But what's happening in 2024? Brandy has been in conversation with the cluster general manager for Radisson Hotels here in Dubai, David Allen Hint. He said, yep, 2024, off to a strong start. Finally talking real estate with Clementine Monroe of Espas Real Estate. All that to come. First up, though, it is earnings season. Let's jump right in. Uh, let's look at some of the big stories of the day. Brandy's been talking ad not. I have indeed. Well, Adnock Distribution, so the petrol station bit of Adnock. A really interesting set of results. And it's not something you say every day. Um, When you look at their future plans, when you look at their expansion, um, when you look at their retail conversion rate, which is a nice way of saying getting us to buy something if we have gone into the petrol station uh, to pay for the fuel. They did see... Um, And it almost seems like one of the least interesting bits in this report, which says something. Um, A slight drop in net profit around 5%, despite an increase of around 8%. I'm talking year on year for their revenue. Bada Al-Lamki is the CEO of Adnock Distribution. This is what he had to say about it. The target was to achieve 1 billion EBITDA, and that was delivered. This is a testimony of the hard work of the team, the trust of the shareholders, and also the trust we get from our customers. A remarkable year. Our free cash flow is above 1 billion, 1.1 billion. We've seen growth both in the fuel volumes as well as in the non-fuel business, which is a very important segment of our business. When we talk about the non-fuel, we talk about the uh, Adnock Oasis, car wash, the loop business, uh, the franchising, uh, the QSRs that we have. All that is growing uh, at a pace of 12.9%. That was also an important contributor to our numbers last year. But if we look at that slight drop in net profit, just because it's a headline figure, 2023 petrol cheaper than 2022 petrol. Is it just because of those lower fuel prices? Yes, that's uh, inevitably is, is the reality of the business that we're in. It's a cyclical uh, business. Uh, oil prices go up, oil prices go down. What is most important is to strip that aside and look at the business fundamentals, the, the sales, the customer loyalty, the, the non-fuel business, uh, the growth in number of stations. Uh, we, we are proud that we have the lion's share of market share in the UAE. Uh, we have uh, 65%, 66% of the uh, fuel retail in the UAE managed and operated by us. And uh, we continue to grow in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. We continue to grow in, in Egypt. We've seen a market entry last year. So overall, a portfolio of 840 stations and, and, and counting. Uh, One of the most interesting things to me in the report was the fact they've got bank backing to expand further in Saudi. Better says um, that there will be more details on just how many stations they're looking to open, hopefully, within the next month. Just some breaking news out of Abu Dhabi this morning. Dana Gas earnings out within the past few minutes. A good but not great net profit 
almost 600 million dirhams. That's a solid set of earnings. It is down from last year when they did 670 million dirhams worth of earnings for the full year. Uh, what's the issue? Well, prices are down. They sell things like condensates. They produce in Sharjah, they're based obviously, but they're Egypt and Kurdistan region of Iraq is a big area for them. Um, and prices for things like condensates have come down. But it, a solid set of numbers from Dana Gas. They've got a new CEO who joined late last year, a chap called Richard Hall, who I don't know. He came from uh, Malaysia, so he's in charge there. So we'll reach out to the guys from Danagas and try and get a bit more on that. But a good solid set of numbers. Getting paid in, in certainly KRI, Kurdistan region of Iraq, has been an, a, an ongoing challenge for Danagas, but they say they are making progress. That's one of a number of uh, headlines for you this morning. Uh, the others, as we focus on locals, a lot of earnings coming out. Rich, what are Bayonet doing? I don't know. Well, I know what they've done is that they've reported a 15% increase in total net profit for the year to 30 million dirhams. Revenue was particularly strong. That was up by 47%. And so it's a very sort of candid press release from Bayonet uh, saying... Yes, our margin is down. Revenue up 5-0%, profit mm. up 15%. What's happened to the margin? And they said a slightly lower margin due to what they call strategic investments in talent, research and development, implementation of a product strategy and new organisational processes. Great. What does Bayonet do? Geospe- so I'm on the website. Honestly, we've covered the listing and I, they do great stuff. I just don't really know what it is. Uh, let me tell you what they say about themselves. Bayonet is now the partner of choice across a growing number of sectors in the UAE, the Middle East and beyond. We provide game-changing advantages through trusted, high-quality geospatial data, geointelligence and AI-powered data analytics. It's space-type stuff. They're based in Abu Dhabi. It's one of these AI tech um, aerospace companies out of Abu Dhabi that's listed on the market not for long, though, because it's merging with Yarsat, a satellite company. I know what Yarsat does, launches and operates satellites. Fine, I get that. Geospatial geointelligence. Is it mapping? Yeah, no, it is. It is the mapping stuff because there were a couple of IPOs, and that is one of them, um, that did tech stuff that sell to you know big customers, sort of your semi-governmenty organisations and agencies and whatever. Because the other one was Presight that has just come out with its earnings as well. They're describing them as profitable and consistent. Uh, net profit for the full year 2023 up just over 5%, revenue up uh, just under 15%. And they point out that they had quite a good uh, Q4 in terms of revenue up over 23% because a lot of their domestic projects went live. Um, and they do a lot of very large enterprise AI type stuff. And, and it's, it, I've always struggled a little bit with, to use your phrase, large enterprise AI type stuff. Companies who do stuff that's really important. Data at an analytics. Exactly. It's hugely important to, to the governments, to large organisations. In, in helping them do what they do. But because I've never been in a senior position in one of those organisations, I don't really get it. What was that company, Palantir, in America that came out this week with earnings? It does similar type stuff in that it's kind of behind the scenes tech. Do, it, huge contracts with the defence industry, with, defense, with the government defence sector in the, the US. No idea what they do. They're now doing it for the private sector because the private sector is saying, wow, that's brilliant. We want some of that. Couldn't tell you what Palantir does. 
I can tell you that Presight excels at all source data interpretation to support insight driven decision making that supports policy and creates safer, healthier, healthier, and more sustainable societies. Ah, it's all clear now. Yeah. Anyway, um, they're doing well, so good on them. But there you go. Two big earnings. A multiply didn't do the great, though. Their, their numbers were down, weren't they, uh, for 2023? Certainly, profit was down on lower investment. Uh, Starts for 10. What did Multiply Group do? Uh, they're a holding company. Thank you. Uh, uh, very good. Yeah, they operate, um, invest in four business lines, mobility, energy, utilities, media and communications. Their number's not, not, not sort of in line with some of the other big ones we've saw. Sharp decline in 23 profit. Why? Lower investment income, higher expenses and finance costs, annual revenue climbing, uh, driven by acquisitions. Uh, so they have... Uh, been in the acquisitions market throughout the year, uh, but the overall profits down for the group as a whole. It's been a good earnings season so far, no question. Actually, in about 10 minutes' time, going to get some more on the international earnings season. We had uh, Disney overnight, Uber yesterday, uh, others coming out this week. Josh Gilbert of eToro, he's an investment strategist, going to join us live to crunch the numbers, particularly on Disney, which came out overnight. Lots happening in the House of Mouse. But as others as well, going to get his talk on the weight loss drug boom as well, because we had Eli Lilly reporting earnings earlier this week. To Saudi Arabia we go, more hotel rooms. Yeah, the just one number literally has jumped out of me. Well, one very basic 5am maths has jumped out at me. Uh, Saudi saying that they're going to add quarter of a million hotel rooms by 2030. OK, OK. Um, about a fifth of that, 75,000, uh, to be contracted out to the private sector. Had a look. The number of hotel rooms in Saudi at the moment stands at 280,000. So they're basically almost going to double it. And that was the number that made me think, okay, that's punchy. So in the next six years, um, they're going to double the amount of hotel rooms that are in the kingdom. Almost. (laughs) That doesn't surprise me in terms of, A, the ambition down there. I mean, whether they meet those targets remains to be seen. I suppose a lot will depend on uh, what happens geopolitically around the region, etc. I mean, you wouldn't bet against it. And the only other thing that I would say to the positive is that every time we have a hotelier either in here or on there in terms of Microsoft Teams, they all talk about Saudi expansion and aggressive expansion for all the brands down into Saudi Arabia at the moment. So they are seeing the opportunity. Yeah, and we're hearing from hoteliers as well that you've got consultancy companies sort of just block booking uh, hotels for their people to come in and out of. I've spoken to business leaders who are basically doing that um, because there is a shortage in apartments. We chatted yesterday to Alex, didn't we? You did, to Astro Astro Labs, Mm -hmm. who said, yeah, there's also a shortage in commercial real estate. Um, You think the rent rises for offices in Dubai are punchy. I give you Riyadh. And hotel rooms as well, particularly if, you know, big consultancy companies or big multinationals are saying, do you know what, we'll just take 15 rooms and hold them because that's going to be cheaper over the year to put our people in uh, than trying to rent an apartment, deal with bills, etc. But one of the things Riyadh's got to build, or Saudi Arabia, particularly Riyadh, is infrastructure as well. Because already getting around Riyadh is, and it makes Dubai look like a picnic. Keep going, this could be your third round of the morning. And... Well, you were saying, Tom, was it you? I think it was you. You were in Riyadh a while ago. Bring me into it, mate. It's, it's your soapbox. Stay on it, OK? Saying it can take three hours to get to the airport from Riyadh yeah. at, at certain times. You were saying it because you were flying back, weren't you? Yeah. You've got to time your run. You've got to time your run. Um, it's, and, and it, because, and, and there's a lot of investment going into the infrastructure there at the moment. We know that that is happening. But basically, 
it's like the good old days of Sheikhzad Road. You know, there's one road in and one road out, and that's it at the moment, especially when it comes to the airport. So there's no alternative routes. Um, so they get chock-a-block, uh, and you have to, yeah, it takes you some time. You've got to time your run and try and avoid the rush hours, that's for sure, which are getting longer and longer. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Earnings season in full swing. Let's get some more insight now. Josh Gilbert is a market analyst at eToro. Joins us now live on the line from Sydney, Australia. Morning, Josh. Good morning, Richard. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Appreciate you joining us. We're drinking from the fire hydrant at the moment, coming thick and fast. Can we start with Disney? Because we got not just earnings from Disney overnight, they were pretty good, quarterly profit beating estimates, but so many announcements about the future of the company from a new streaming service to buying a stake in a company that makes the Fortnite video game. What was your key takeaway? Yeah, look, all in all, it was a good report, um, given Disney's sort of struggles recently. Um, And I think it should really help alleviate some of those investor concerns, especially with sort of those big announcements, as you mentioned, from this sort of new sports streaming service and their investment uh, into, uh, you know, Epic Games as well. So I think two really big announcements there that will go a long way. Um, The solid profit outlook as well will, will really help. And what that's showing is that, you know, CEO Bob Iger's cost-cutting measures are really beginning to, to sort of bear fruit. Maybe one side that was a slight disappointment was Disney Plus subscriber numbers fell slightly short of estimates. But on the other side of that, what we actually saw was that its losses for the streaming business had narrowed. So that's really important. That means that Disney Plus is going to be getting to profitability quicker than they had initially expected. And that's a real catalyst for the stock moving forward because you're going to be catching up with the likes of Netflix, who flexed their financial strength uh, just last month with, you know, profitability, a huge cash balance as well. So, look, Bob Iger's done a great job at sort of cutting costs. It seems to be coming through. Whether Disney has sort of got its magic back is is sort of yet to be seen. But I think they're set up for a better year this year. Well, Nelson Peltz is not convinced. After these earnings came out, and it was just a few hours ago, despite the fact that profit was better than expected, despite all these new initiatives, he is not happy, he wants a seat on the board to transform Disney. He points out that the share price of Disney is down 11% over the past year, when the S&P 500 is up by 20%. And he said of the earnings release and announcements last night, we saw this movie last year and we didn't like the ending. Does he have a point? Yeah, I think he does. I mean, look, ultimately, we've got a stock here uh, that is very well known by uh, pretty much everyone, right? But we're trading at sort of near 10-year lows. And when you think about Disney as a a business, it shouldn't be anywhere near uh, those levels. Obviously, it had a really, really tough time over, obviously, COVID. Uh, It's struggled to sort of come back. It obviously launched its streaming service, which has, you know, really been sort of beaten down by Netflix over the last sort of year or so as well. Um, I think, though, they are laying the groundwork here. You know, this is not going to happen overnight. The cost cutting that Bob Iger is bringing in is going to sort of continue to sort of come through throughout the year. Um, There is obviously plenty of, you know, activists, uh, you know, that are obviously having their say. But I think we've got to let Disney what they do best, ultimately. Um, You know, they're, they're seeing a big pickup in parks as well, which is sort of really important. If they can also continue to launch you know, new services, if they can increase prices across Disney Plus as well, just like Netflix have done, uh, which has helped them massively over the last sort of year, 
you know, I think that we're going to get to that sort of profitability for the streaming service faster than expected. And I think that's good news. Can we talk about weight loss drugs and the craze in those? We had earnings from Eli Lilly out this morning. Two big players in that, Eli Lilly in America, Novo Nordisk in Denmark in Europe. Eli Lilly shares up 3% yesterday, more than doubled over the past year. Sales of Manjaro, their main weight loss drug, up 700% over the past year. It, have we missed the boat as investors when it comes to, to these stocks and the weight loss boom? Or is there more to come on this, do you think? Yeah, I think that's the big question, right? Because both of these companies have had a huge tailwind from the sales and the growth of these weight loss drugs. Um, I think Zempic is probably one that's that sort of captured the headlines um, and also probably captured, you know, Wall Street really uh, as well. It's had companies such as McDonald's and Walmart talking about it with obviously potentially a, a slowdown in sales for them with this sort of suppressing appetite from this drug. But I think there is still room to grow. I think this you know, obesity is a massive problem worldwide. We've got 650 million people overweight. And I think that there's a huge potential for Nova Nordics, Eli Lilly to continue to grow. I mean, take Nova Nordics, for example, as well. They've just acquired a new manufacturing business to help develop uh, more weight loss drugs, which should continue to keep competition at bay, which should mean that we're going to continue to see sales growing higher because Ultimately, they believe at this point the demand is going to stay high, which means for both these companies, they're going to continue to benefit moving forward. Uber earnings out yesterday before the bell. Uh, we had Uber earnings. It didn't do an awful lot yesterday in terms of the share price because the good news was priced in. But Uber has doubled over the past year, closing yesterday at about 70 bucks a share. It turned a profit for the year for the first time, but only a billion dollars. This is a company with a market cap of 150 billion dollars. Is Uber worth such a high valuation, Josh? Look, I, I think they've had a great year. Uh, I think they've finally matured financially as a business after ultimately spending lots of cash to sort of gain market share over the last sort of few years. Profitability felt like a long way away. Uh, but I think, yes, I, I think the, the, the business that Uber has is fantastic um, and it is beginning to sort of mature now. And I think that's really important. As you say, the first year of sort of full profitability, they entered the S&P 500 last year as well, which was a real big milestone for the company. They've come a really long way, you know, after sort of what was a challenging period as well during uh, the sort of the, the pandemic. But I think their full year results and, and these quarterly results, as I say, show that sort of maturity as well. You know, they're, they're seeing uh, rides grow, their Uber One uh, membership business is, is really helping to drive revenue. That's keeping people within the ecosystem. Josh, we're out of time. 19. We're going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid. Thank you so much for joining us this morning live on the line from Sydney. The thoughts of Josh Gilbert, market analyst there at eToro. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Having a look at one of the big headlines of the morning, and that is Dubai's tourism numbers. New record for annual tourists, more than 17 million last year. 20% up in 2022 and a little bit higher, but 2.5% higher than pre-pandemic. Big deal for our economy. I reached out to Dan Richards of Emirates MBD last night to say, how much is tourism of the Dubai economy? And he got back and said, look, it's between 12 or 15 
percent, depending sort of how far you're stretching it, because you've got hotels, obviously direct benefiter, restaurants, uh, and you've got transport, which is 13% of the basket, but obviously only a chunk of that is going to be Emirates. And we've been discussing the ride hailing services. If you're a tourist, obviously here you're paying to get around town. You haven't got a car. 9% across the UAE as a whole, he said, but it will be higher in Dubai. So putting that at somewhere between 12 and 15, which is why we look at it in so much detail. And this morning we are going to look at what that new record for tourists felt like last year on the ground and how we are positioning ourselves one month and a bit in for 2024. David Allen is Cluster General Manager of Radisson Hotel Group. Morning, David. Morning, Brandy. Did it feel like a record year for you? Yes. Um, it, look, it, overall, it was an extremely positive year, uh, particularly for our hotels in Dubai. Um, it was driven by so many different events that we had across the Emirate. And, you know, the, the kind of feeling of, um, I, I get that 2019 is used as a benchmark, but certainly the feeling is um, that the pandemic was a long, long time ago. What kind of occupancy did you come in at? Well, I'm not really allowed to tell you that, but we certainly came, we certainly came in at a higher level than uh, the figures are suggesting for Dubai. Um, of course, our two hotels, uh, Radisson Blues and, and Business Bay, have the benefit of a very strong a location, so um, we were extremely positive, and it, it's certainly the first time that these two hotels have hit that level in their in their lifetime. Right, I was going to say, and I think you've answered my question. Did you come in at higher than than pre pandemic? Yes, thankfully, thankfully, we were very fortunate. Um, there was a lot going on in the area. Um, there's a little bit of pressure on rate across the Emirate, as you can see from the numbers that they've released. But I mean, that's a, a very small consideration if you consider. Um, the growth in demand. You also consider there's another approximately 5,000 room nights added, and or sorry, 5,000 rooms added in Dubai uh, last year. Um, the the growth in total and total revpar is extremely positive. Did last year follow the usual patterns, those pre-pandemic patterns of high and low season and uh, the demographics that we normally see, or has there been a massive shift? Now we have, have, as you say, come completely out the other end. There's certainly a shift over over what would be traditionally regarded as as, as the lower season, which is of course the, the the summer months, and we're still looking at doing occupancies uh, comfortably above sixty percent, um, if not much higher than that uh, in those months. Um, and before traditionally you would be you would be much lower than that. The actual high season itself, um, the demand is essentially constant throughout. There is always um, an impact depending on the timing of Ramadan. But I, again, I mean, you can see from the numbers in the last year, it didn't make a significant difference to the Emirate. Okay, we spoke to people sort of uh, who benefit from, from tourism rather than hotels themselves, restaurants, yacht charters, uh, holiday rentals um, in the run up to New Year's. And some of them said to us that December and New Year's this year was feeling a little quieter. They were putting it down to weaker European economy, stronger dollar. Um, and, a, and, a, and a pricier Dubai. What did you see in that last month of the year? Uh, quite the opposite, to be frank. Uh, the demand driven by COP28 um, coming into the city was a huge benefit to the hotels because, of course, there's the need for the accommodation. I also accept that perhaps for some of the more uh, leisure-led activities that most of the delegates for COP28 were here uh, on business, uh, we didn't see a tremendous amount of pre- and post-stayover after that. And then we saw usually a strong Christmas period and yet another exceptionally strong uh, Hogmanay New Year. 
Okay, so let's look at 2024, a month and a bit in. How's she looking so far? Oh, she's looking good so far. Uh, it's a very strong start. Um, January, we've closed the books in, in our hotels. Uh, we're very happy with where we sit. And we see certainly a, another strong degree of growth against January last year. And February looks particularly strong as well. There's a little bit of uncertainty at the moment with regard to March, um, just because, again, of the, the timing of Ramadan. But we expect the first week of March to be extremely strong. And April already, whereas it's perhaps a little bit uh, bloody in March, uh, April, uh, in terms of business on the books, looks very encouraging as well. What does that mean for rates um, for anyone who might be looking staycation-wise in the uh, Emirate? Are we going to see continued high prices this year? I would uh, strongly suggest that that depends on what your definition of high is. If, if the rate in 2023 is, is held essentially against 2022 levels, then that would suggest that the, the when I mentioned the, the, the pressure on rate, that that's still going to be there. And we see that uh, so far uh, this year as well. I mean, pressure is, is a very strong word, but the, the supply is kind of matching the growth in volume. I think there are deals to be had, and it, it very much depends on uh, where you're choosing to stay. But, of course, I would strongly recommend always staying in a Radisson Hotel group hotel. Uh, last thing with you, one minute. We've been talking this morning about Saudi's plans to nearly double its hotel keys. There are a couple of reticence in Saudi. Do you have plans for more expansion in the kingdom? We, we are the largest international operator in uh, the kingdom, uh, and we have a, an incredibly strong pipeline coming there. It's not something I'm directly involved with personally, but we do work uh, closely with the team in Saudi, um, there's a lot of growth going on there, a lot of excitement about what's happening in the kingdom. David Allen is Cluster General Manager of the Radisson Hotel Group, speaking to him this morning about Dubai surpassing its pre-pandemic numbers for tourism by about 2.5%, uh, coming in around 20% up on last year, a new record at more than 17 million tourists in 2023. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Delighted to be joined in the studio by the Associate Director at SPAS Real Estate, Head of Apartment Sales, is Clementine Monroe. Morning. Morning. Good to have you with us. So we were talking earlier on this year, 2023, we know record year for Dubai real estate. The question was, could it be sustained in 2024? Well, here we sit on the 8th of February and the answer so far is yes. Headlines suggest another record month in January. What have you seen? I think certainly what we're seeing is uh, increase in viewings, increase in transactions. But perhaps what we're seeing is more of a marriage between buyers and sellers now. So sellers being incredibly bullish last year and sometimes that got in the way of transactions happening just as prices soared to a certain level, unattainable for some buyers. But what we're seeing now is a lot of momentum in the market and a lot of transactions closing. So are we seeing then deal closing prices flatten out if what you're saying is true, if the sellers are being more realistic about prices? Yes, I think flattening is, is or sloping gently upwards, but not quite the heavy, uh, you know, trudge upwards that it was last year. Sloping gently upwards sounds like Tom and I after a big night out. So if we dig down into the market, we know it was ultra luxury that has been driving this boom really since 2021 or so when the world and his wife descended on Dubai during the pandemic. Is that still a, a separate subsector of the market? Yes, it is. And um, what are we seeing there? Because we had a similar story earlier from Michael Shaloub, didn't we, Tom? You were speaking to him. Shaloub Group, the local partner of LVMH, uh, Louis Vuitton and, and other 
luxury goods companies here in the region. He said ultra luxury goods, 17% increase doing really, really well, didn't he? But what did he say about mainstream luxury, as he called it? Same. I mean, holding steady at the moment. So they've seen they've seen an increase in numbers, which sort of seem to be uh, 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 in line with the visitor numbers coming in, population growth. All the numbers seem to track towards people wanting to buy more stuff. And they were seeing good numbers across pretty much all brands and all segments, uh, particularly in ultra luxury. But what about mid market? Well, that's actually where this year we've seen the most transactions happening. So we're a particularly strong agent in the kind of expatriate communities, but still luxury communities such as Meadows, Lakes, Springs, Arabian Ranches, and perhaps where some communities such as Palm Jumeirah, Jumeirah Golf Estates are really getting quite punchy now. Meadows, Ranches, Victory Heights, they're now seeming almost good value, dare I say. And as a result, we're seeing a significant amount of transactions happening in those communities. So what's the sweet spot in terms of a, a type of property and, and the typical price point that you're seeing in the first couple of months of 2024? I would say we're transacting a lot of properties between the 5 and 15 million dirham mark. That's still a lot of money, isn't it? It is. By any normal standards in any city in the world. I know we get a little bit warped here in Dubai, don't we, where we, we talk with these huge numbers and we almost class them as affordable luxury, yet to many people around the world, obviously, they're incredibly expensive. But, you know, mortgage rates are softening. We've got some excellent mortgage products um, around and ultimately people want to be here. And I think the reality, whilst rents remain high, the cost of buying uh, remains pretty fair, particularly compared to other key global cities. What are we seeing in terms of, of home loans and mortgages? You talked about the rates there, which is one part of it. The base rate in Dubai in the UAE is 5.5% almost at the mm -hmm. moment after Fed rate hiking. And yet some banks are offering below base, aren't they, on, on a fixed rate? Or you can get 4-ish percent, can't you? Exactly. We've also got uh, bank products now where you can roll in your fees and that's freeing up buyers to spend an extra 6%. And that's the benefit for us really having a strong in-house mortgage team is being able to have a holistic approach to home buying, using our in-house finance team to work with our buyers and our brokers in order to maximise the opportunity to purchase in the communities that people are interested in. Because I remember the central bank put in place these rules quite a few years ago now. And it was a different loan-to-value ratio for, for more expensive properties. And one of the, the thresholds they had was 5 million dirhams. Properties above 5 million dirhams, you had a much smaller, um, or you had to put a bigger chunk of equity in. So the loan-to-value ratio was lower. And, and that was when 5 million dirhams seemed like a lot of money to a property. But from what you're saying, that's most of the properties you're selling at the moment are above that threshold. So if I'm buying, let's say, 10 million dirhams to use your sweet spot property in... Arabian ranches to use your destination. What can, how much of that can I borrow? How much of that 10 million do I have to put down? So what you'll have to put down is 36% uh, of that in cash. So your loan to value, you can borrow 70%, but then you need 6% uh, Sorry, of fixed fees. So you're going to need 36% of that value in cash to put down. And people have got that. They do. And of the, the homes that you're transacting on this year, I know you and John and the team do crunch these numbers. What percentage have some kind of financing or home loan attached to them? Ah, well, this is the interesting thing. We are at the moment a significantly cash-based agency. So about 70% of our transactions at the moment are cash. 
And that's not changed over the past year or no. so. That's been pretty consistent. We've, we've begun, the environment's become more liquid. So we're seeing more cash in the market than we ever have historically. What about this influx of, of foreign buyers? We've spoken 18 months ago, if we were sitting here, we'd have been talking about the influx of Russian buyers. Over the past few months, we've talked about the gradual return of buyers from China. What nationalities are you seeing in your office at the moment? We remain and have done, and you can see this data in our report. We do, um, we release a report quarterly, and British buyers remain the number one buyer profile at Espace Real Estate, followed by Indian uh, and then mainland European countries. Russia is actually only our 10th largest uh, buyer nationality. Is that partly because a lot of people who work at Espace, John Lyons, for example, the managing director, who we speak to often, is British? Do you tend to get, I'm just throwing out, I don't know, that maybe British buyers would gravitate towards someone like an SBAS that does have a large number of British people. Maybe Russian buyers would go to, you know, we speak to other agencies run by Russian entrepreneurs. Do you get an element of that? Perhaps. Perhaps it's feeling a little bit more comfortable um, with a with the type of agent you might recognise from home. However, I would say it's not so much our agents, but more the areas within which we sell. So we're predominantly very strong in communities that naturally appeal to the British and mainland European expat buyer. One story you've been looking at this week, I know, is about the relative price of property here compared to other cities. You're comparing to the likes of Mumbai in India, lots of Indian buyers, and London, lots of British buyers. So let's take those two. We are still cheap. Absolutely. I mean, I was speaking to a colleague of mine, uh, an ex-colleague of mine, actually, from Savills, and she was saying she's got some interest on an asset in the UK that's £10,000 pounds a square foot to be in a prime London new build development. That's about 50,000 dirhams a square foot. Yeah, exactly. What, uh, what would a, a posh property here, pr- prime property here be, dirhams I per square foot? I think maximum, Espas received a record-breaking price per square foot in Atlantis, the royal development, and that was closer to 10,000 dirhams a square foot. Okay, so there's still that differential five to one London to Dubai. Massive. So if you're a wealthy international buyer, you're coming here and thinking, 50 million dirhams for an apartment, that's a bargain. Absolutely. It's a nice position to be in. I am not, but there we go. Glad that those who are are in Dubai, and I guess they are stimulating the economy, aren't they? This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.